everybody, I'm Jeff Suckendorf, CEO of UTVs. I don't even know the name of my company anymore. It's changed. <laughs> we did what, that five times. Is the name changed? Yeah, it's UTD Scuba Diving now, not Unified Team Diving. Anymore. Well, it's Unified Team Diving or UTD Scuba Diving. Or UTD Diving. Yeah. you got to have an official name. It's UTD Scuba Diving. Okay. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jeff Suckendorf, CEO of UTD Scuba Diving, back with training director Ben Boss. Hey, Ben. Hey, hey. It's been a while. I know. It's been a few podcasts we've done uh, that, that you've somehow missed for one reason or another. So it's great, great that you're back. Yeah. Well, most of them, I enjoyed listening to them. I mean, most of them were about your very successful camp, and we're just looking forward to having our own camp here soon in Europe on this side of the pond. Oh, my God. Skills camp was amazing. It was just amazing. So uh, if you're hearing about the skills camp now for the first time, go back a few episodes and uh, check out the podcast because it was a really, really fun week in San Diego. Um, but we're going to do – today we're going to be a little risky. Yeah. We're going to talk about risk. Exactly. Let's take a risk on this one. <laughs> we'll, take a, we'll take a risk on this one. So we're going to use some jargon today, and we'll explain it as we go. But we're going to start out – with the idea of risk homeostasis. Yeah. So let's start out with the big words and then we'll put small words in the podcast later. Exactly. So exactly. What, is risk, what is risk homeostasis? Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the term risk homeostasis was coined somewhere in the 1960s. It can be described as the level where your perception of risks equal the acceptance of those risks Thus, we are in homeostasis. So you're perceiving something as a risky endeavor, um, but you're willing to accept the risks that, that accompany that. Let's take mountain biking, for example. I mean, everyone's heard that people have fallen off their mountain bike and broken a collarbone. Uh, yet there's people every week in the forest driving their mountain bikes down a trail, which to me looks insane. I'll stick to the roads. But... Still, people accept those risks, so their risk homeostasis is in balance, so to speak. Is that the same as being comfortable with risk? Yeah, I guess so. I guess you can say that. I mean, to a certain degree, people uh, look at us as being complete and in other insane people when we go diving in these caves and crawl through small spaces, and they would never ever risk that because uh, they accept uh, or they think that that risk is just too great to accept, where we feel that we got a grasp of the risks involved in that type of activity. I think one of the things that's interesting about the idea of risk homeostasis is that it's our job as instructors to to give people a vision of what a ri- what the risk is. And I think that you can compare the risk of something like a cave dive before you start cave training and then after you've completed your cave training, right? Because your perception is going to change throughout that process of training. For sure, for sure. And and that leads me to whatever your homeostasis is, it kind of adjusts your behavior depending on the perception of that risk. And for example, training or partaking in said activity, be it mountain biking or cave diving, can alter your perception and the, doing so alter your acceptance of that risk. 
bringing both up probably, uh, or bringing one down and the other up, that's therefore coming back into homeostasis. I think that a lot of this perception comes from the outside. And when we look at some of the things we do, cave diving is one of them, technical diving. You know, I mean, I ride a bicycle, I do motor pacing on a bicycle where I'm riding, you know, 35 kilometers, 35 miles an hour, 50K an hour, four inches behind a motorcycle to practice high speed riding on a track. And to me, that is just the most natural thing because I've been doing it for years. People look at that and say, that's just nuts. Yeah. There's a lot of it in flying that people look at and say, you know, aerobatic flying, it's crazy nuts. But a lot of that perception comes from the outside, from people who have not been through any training in these particular things. So they're speaking from a position of, I don't want to say ignorance in a negative way, but speaking from a perspective of being untrained. So training training gets you to the ability to put some of this risk into homeostasis, right? When you when you look at the risks and look at the psychology behind it, when you dig a little bit into the theory of this, um, they 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 sometimes classify familiar risks and unfamiliar risks, and we are more willing to accept higher risks when the risks are familiar. Um, so, for example, uh, still outside of diving. Partaking in what if, uh, skiing is a familiar risk that you can break your leg. Everyone's heard about this. People break legs when they go skiing. Except, well, we'll, we'll, we'll accept that because, hey, you know, um, they probably went too fast or um, they weren't trained for that level of grade on the ski slope. You can hear I'm not a very big skier. I don't know all these colors. So I don't want to go on a limb and say that blue is more than green or whatever. If there is there, such a play. blue, blue is harder than green. Ah, great. Good guess. <laughs> so, so you have these two um, distinctions, right? And then you have obviously uh, the voluntary um, risks you're willing to take being participating in that skiing and then maybe going down that blue slope uh, instead of the green one because uh, you're you want to see what that's like you're voluntarily putting yourself at risk um, the same thing can be said for speeding in a car you're late for an appointment you're voluntarily speeding thus putting yourself at higher risk because yeah driving faster is more risky the the thing where it becomes tricky is when you got unfamiliar and involuntary risks and that meaning okay because of the speeding you actually exceed whatever uh, safety limit of the tire you know some tires have a safety speed limit um, winter tires here in, in in this cold climate where i live for example are rated up to a maximum speed if you exceed that that tire may break and that's obviously something you didn't do voluntarily. You speeded voluntarily, but you didn't voluntarily broke the, break the tire. So in our world, we have a name for that called a trust me dive. Yeah, exactly. A trust me dive when you trust you know, the other diver to have all the answers if something breaks and you have none of the answers if anything breaks. <laughs> um, but equipment failure in our case uh, is, is a involuntary risk. Uh, even though it might be a, a familiar risk, right? Because we all hear about free-flowing regulators in scuba diving. It c- can happen, and it's a, not a big deal, except it's still involuntary. You don't, you, you're not putting yourself purposefully in a position where it will free-flow. So in a, in a trust-me dive 
you could be taking somebody for their first dive in doubles with no training and they have a valve failure yeah. and have no idea what to do with it. Yeah, or, or even worse, you have a valve failure and, and you cannot. You have to ask them to figure out if it's fixable or not or, or if you took the right decision or not. And they'll have no idea. In a trust me dive, they'll have no idea. And they'll have no idea. Exactly. So when we when we come back to to the theory about risk homeostasis, risk homeostasis theory, RHT as it's called, if you do some research on it, you'll see many, many um, uh, links to the automotive industry. And uh, it's funny because in in Sweden, they changed from being left-hand drivers to right-hand drivers uh, in the 60s somewhere. And in the beginning, and they did that because they thought it would be safer. In the beginning, accidents fell. So the amount of accidents dropped. Perfect. So everyone thought that, hey, this was the right decision. We changed from left-hand drivers to right-side drivers on the right side of the street. And um, that worked. But after a couple of years, the accidents reported came back to the same level because people have now accepted this new way. It's not novel anymore. And now hey, we're back to the same driving behavior. It's just now on the other side of the road. So. That's just such an interesting example, Ben, because every time I go to a country that's uh, driving on the left, it's like I'm, those are the days I'm the best driver I've ever been because I'm like so focused on that line and where people are going. and You're so hyper-focused. I've never been a better driver than the days I've shown up in like Australia or something like that. Not to mention driving up to a roundabout when you have to go left way around it instead of right way around it. Oh my God. My first bike ride in Australia, we're going like, you know, again, 40K an hour, 25 miles an hour, and we hit the roundabouts and they all go left and it just, it just freaked me out. It was crazy. Your stomach is on the right side and you're on the left side. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's a really interesting thing. That's this familiarity issue where, you know, I don't think about a roundabout in the US going on the right, but boy, I was concentrating like crazy when i was doing it you know mm. in australia or some of the other countries that drive on the, on the wrong side yeah exactly exactly so the, the the way we can deal with these risks is by putting safety features in place right i mean that's what we see uh in if you drive off the the ferry for example coming from europe to the uk um very, very often the roads that come from there have these big arrows going, you know, pointing you to the left side of the roads to re, to, to like reinforce you. It's like, hey, be aware, we're driving on the other side here. Um, the same thing with, with scuba diving, right? I mean, if certain risks are there, let's say decompression illness. Well, we have a computer with, with these and these safety features with... Um, a plus level of conservatism, whatever that means. But you can put it in plus one or plus two or plus three. Wait a minute, I'm putting it in plus three. Now I'm super safe or what? You know, it's 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 kind of a funny thing that when, when we surround us with safety features, the theory of um, risk homeostasis is that then we are willing to accept higher risks. So you were talking about skiing earlier. Do you think that when release... Oh, you're not a skier, so maybe this isn't a good question to ask you, but when release... I tried snowboarding once. Uh, 
So back in the day, bindings did not release. The skis didn't release. Yeah. And of course, everybody's legs broke. And then, you know, as bindings got to be releasable, skis would fly off instead of legs breaking. So, you know, part of this is, that, of course, I think that made people much more aggressive skiers because they had, you know, a little safety net there in case they turned themselves into a yard sale. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine? Wow. Those, I mean, I know that much about skiing that when you do fall on your ass, because I've tried that a couple of times, then they pop <laughs> off, right? Um, they're supposed to. Yeah, they're supposed to. But then I know also because the good skiers, Casper uh, Dryo, the instructor, other instructor from Denmark here, uh, he's a very uh, keen skier. And, you know, he has probably his bindings a bit tighter so that he can do jumps and, you know, land in a bit of an awkward angle and still not have him, his ski flying off his foot uh, when he's perfectly upright. So this is where uh, the theory, in my mind, makes a lot of sense that as soon as we put a, a, like a safety feature in place, we accept more risks, thus being at the same risk. So, so the equipment or the scenario or the situation or something takes on some of the risk in some ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the automotive industry, they, they put a lot of um, uh, examples in this, like these all these dive, dive vehicle controlled things like ABS braking system and, and, and balance control and, and DCS or what's it called, you know, like when you're, when you're almost skidding out of a corner the car can can put on the brakes in one wheel and not in the other and whatever. It, it's just all in place so that the car stays on the road. We talked about this um, before we started recording, right? I just I recently got a new car that has that beep when you go out of the lane. Yeah. And I didn't realize what a crappy driver I was yeah. <laughs> until I started driving with this thing and it's beeping forever. Yeah, the exactly. thing never stops beeping. It's like, why is the car beeping all the time? And of course, you know, you have to look at it and say, well, maybe you're just a crappy driver. You're not staying in your lane. Exactly. And But it's also, it, it allows me to, I can see that I'm thinking less about it because I know that this thing is behind, this piece of equipment is behind me as a driver, supporting me as I weave all over the road or whatever it is I must be doing to make the thing beep. My car does the same thing and it's a van. So sometimes when it's windy, it, it, you know, it jostles the car a little bit and the, the steering wheel somehow records my jerking on the wheel to not drive off the road. But then it pops up in the display saying, hey, you are tired. Take a break and with a coffee icon, <laughs> you know. But the first time I saw that I was like, okay, that's making me think that I can die, drive my car tired until it notices that I'm getting tired so I can just drive. Such is such a strange way, I think, uh, of, of our, you know, how our psychology works. Well, that, but we're seeing industry put controls in, um, I assume, to protect themselves legally, but it, also in a way that makes us, um, absolves us a little bit from the actual risk that we're we're facing. Yeah, and so. Are there places in scuba? I can think of a bunch right off the gate where... Oh, for sure. You know, the industry has put things in place to protect us. Yeah. One is, you know, in a rebreather, the copus or the leaky valve, right? That just feeds oxygen into your rebreather because we as human beings must not be smart enough 
to manage our own PPO2. Yeah, exactly. Right? Same with solenoid, electronic solenoids. We're not smart enough to do it, so let's have a piece of machinery do it. The difference is in that scenario, when either of those two things break, the results are catastrophic. It's it's a thing, right? I mean, and even though, and even with 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 equipment, we can also think about the gases we use are perceived being safer, thus we're taking more risks. Um the other day, I got a great question from one of my students, and uh, they were talking in his dive club about nitrox and how nitrox makes them feel fresher. And he was like, hmm, when I look at your theory and when I look at the, the materials, um, that doesn't really make any sense, he said, because if you're diving with nitrox and diving now to the new limits being longer underwater, you're basically... You know, taking on the same amount of nitrogen, putting your body under the same amount of decompression stress, it just takes you a little bit longer to get there. Uh, so it shouldn't make them feel fresher. And, and I said, you're perfectly correct. But on the other hand, if they're using nitrox and they're diving um, as if it was air, you might get a little benefit because you have a higher PPO2, a lower PP, PN2, uh, thus, you're 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 absolving or dissolving less nitrogen, giving your body less decompression stress on the way up. Yes, but again, that's a tough one because, you know, can you really tell on a sixty foot, eighteen meter dive if it's the the gas you're breathing or that you're tired or you forgot to drink a glass of water? I mean, these are exactly these are not very stressful dives on your body when you're talking about. You know, no. 60, 80 feet, you know, 18, 20, 24 meters. Exactly. And I was going to say that because of that maybe placebo effect, you're, you're willing to take more risks because you're probably pushing limits further um, than you would do otherwise. Yeah, but you know, it's so interesting you say that because uh, physics doesn't know anything about the placebo effect. No, no. Right. Your, your brain knows a lot about the placebo effect, but the nitrogen that's going into your body is going in whether you believe it's going in or not. Exactly. <laughs> whether you believe it or not, it's going places, yeah. So it's so funny. I ended this conversation with him. It's like saying, okay, if you want something that really works, do a slow ascent from 50% of your depth. Just slow down from 10 meters per minute to 3 meters per minute and ascend in that way after 50 minutes. So you do a 30 meter dive, you go from 30 to 15 in 10 meters per minute, and then you slow down to three meters per minute. The time it takes you to get to the surface is exactly the same as doing a safety stop at five meters for three minutes, except you're slowing down your ascent rate from half of the way. And that quantifiably makes you fresher when you get out of the water, 100% yeah. guaranteed. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing we see is if you're tech trained on those, those 30 meter, 100 foot dives right to NDL are stressful on your body. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a, a little five or 10 minutes of oxygen at 20 feet and six meters, that I empirically, that makes a huge difference oh, to me. For sure. And, and I have to believe it's more than placebo. That is more than, that's definitely, I mean, come on, if we look at, if you really dive deep in that, how, how do we load our tissues when we're diving an, a, a nitrox mixture to 30 meters? We can stay there within NDL for 30 minutes, almost across the board. Any dive computer, any table, ratio deco, regardless. That's about the accepted limit. 
That's the limit. That means you're at the limit at this point. Now you're making an ascent. If nothing is the problem, that that's just. But you're all the way to the limit. That means it's like you're you're driving your car through a bend, and you're turning so hard on the wheel that you're at the limit of the grip of your tires, and that's perfectly fine. But uh, a small piece of debris on the on the road, and you're out of there. You know, there's no limit for margin. There's no margin for error. Um, and now it comes to back to the to is the diving safer? If we spend a longer time and pushing those limits, I I, I would um, uh, argue that it's less safe because we're pushing the limits further. Um, so when we look at dive computers, people put a dive computer on because now we take the fallible brain out of the question, right? We we can make mistakes. Humans make mistakes, so let's do let a computer do the work and. And we accept that the numbers shown on the display of our dive computer is the right way to go up. Even though we, the human, can input all kinds of parameters into that computer that totally are out of line with reality. And not so long ago, I was on a dive with certain uh, with a certain group of people. And they were planning a reasonably deep dive and they were really focused on the total time they would need on this dive. So the total time they would spend in the water. Uh, and they would say, ah, let's keep our total time, uh, total time to surface. In this case, let's keep that in within an hour or whatever. But they would plan the dive in their dive computer with a certain depth and a certain time. And the dive computer sped out a, a, a total type time number for them. Ah, that's a bit too long. And then they changed some of the settings on this dive computer to get the resulting number below that one hour. But it didn't change the depth or the time they wanted to spend at that depth. And then I like kind of cheeky interrupted them and said, wow, can you just push a button and that cu cuts off your deco time? Yeah, yeah, we can change. And there were you know, throwing all big words like gradient factors and all that stuff around. And, and they were saying, I can just do this and that and blah, blah, blah. And now it's only 58 minutes of total time to service. Okay, great. Oh my God. If you can do that, why not put it in such a way that it's zero? You can just go straight up. <laughs> if you can push a button. Well, you know, we see that too on dive boats where people come up with a computer that's beeping and they tie it to a line and throw it back in the water. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the computer goes down to 20 feet for half an hour to clear itself. Otherwise, you can't dive the day after. Believe computers or not, isn't the body that carried that computer kind of full of inert gas? Well, exactly, exactly. And then you got a backup computer, right? Because the computer can fail, so you need two of those expensive machines. Right, and they never read the same. And they never read the same. Or if they read the same, then it's you who put it in there. So it says 58 minutes. Maybe your body needs 65. Who knows? So this is just all very interesting as we start to explore where the risk is and what we're willing to accept. And and um, I think that we started this conversation with the idea of comfort with risk or familiarity with risk. And I really believe that that's a big part of it, that you know, we get so comfortable with the fact that I've done the same dive and I've set my computer for 58 minutes and I've done it 10 times and and uh, it just gets you get complacent in that scenario that you know I, I think you you know you've talked about this a little bit already too but you know 
your risk goes up with complacency because you're used to the idea that you can be successful at something. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, that, that brings us to, to the next point in this talk, which is a, a concept called, called normalization of deviance. And that's, a, again, two big words. But it basically means that your willingness to accept a new norm that's out of the norm because it just has happened so many times in a row without consequence. So if you're a good accept, good example of this is um, a body check, like what we call an equipment match. Basically check if everything is in place and it's always there, it always works. So after five times after your initial open water course, most of the divers never ever do that body check or equipment match again. Uh, because, hey, it's always there and it always works. Until that day where you jump in the water and your inflator hose is not on your dry suit or your, your weight belt is still in the car. And you could have caught that at the car doing your equipment match. Um, if there's never any consequence of your choices, why should you make other choices if you never feel the consequence? And, and this is a thing we call normalization of deviance is we, we, we rationalize the risks after shortcuts have been taken. And then we rationalize, okay, we can do this again and again and again. And this concept was actually made very popular by the Challenger accident in uh, 86. And um, the lady who coined the term normalization of deviance is called Diane Vaughn. Uh, and she was a researcher that um, that actually dug into the years prior to the accident to see what happened, what led to this horrible accident. And it, if you do a little bit of research, you'll, you'll read about the, the ominous O-ring, which I think ties quite nice into um, our diving. We use a multitude of O-rings. And uh, the short story of it was this O-ring was meant to be used in a certain temperature range and during a multitude of test runs, they noticed that the area in which this O-ring was placed was outside of the temperature range, time and time again. And then eventually they just accepted that at, okay, wait a minute, it is the normal range uh, is here. We're doing tests and nothing happens, even though we're outside of this temperature range. You know, that must be okay. So they've actually written, rewritten procedures and manuals and waivers to just get away from the risk of that or, or the acceptance of the risk of that O-ring. And during uh, the accident, it was that O-ring that failed. So is that the O-ring's fault? Or is it an equipment failure? Or is it a case of normalization of deviance? I would argue the latter. Because if you accept something that's out of the norm, willingly, you also have to accept the risk that it will fail at one point. So in Catalina Island, out off the coast of LA, there's a, a dive park, uh, and the entrance to the dive park is a set of stairs that go down to the water. It's the easiest diving and some of the most beautiful in California. And I was queuing up in the line of six or eight or ten divers all with their gear and their fins ready to go in the guy in front of me who i stepped behind had a back zip dry suit wide open and i just 
you know, I just tapped him on the shoulder and asked him if he was planning on diving with his dry suit wide open. And he was like, no, no, gee, no, maybe I should go back and fix it. It's like, yeah, that'd be a good idea. But, you know, again, it's interesting. It's like there's so much complacency that is built into our our daily living Mm. where, you know, we go downstairs, we get a cup of hot coffee. We don't spill it on ourselves 500 times that when you knock the cup over and burn yourself, it's like, oh, that's a surprise. Yeah. When you when you zip up a back zip dry suit where you can't see the zipper, which in, you can think what you want makes no sense to me, but you you know you, you do five hundred dives in that thing, and the one day you don't zip it up is it the rest of the dive feels completely normal. I mean, that guy never would have known what happened until he got in the water and he all of a sudden you know weighed who knows how much and and yeah, uh, freezes you know, his ass off. And was the first of maybe three or four other things that could have gone wrong in that instant when he was trying to deal with it. So, so I think this whole idea of normalization of deviance is really interesting to us. And it, and I think it's a fancy word for complacency. Well, it leads to complacency, I think, right? I mean, the first time it happens, it's not complacency yet because it's the first time. Except when you willingly let it happen and let it become the new norm, that's complacency. And I think when, when we look at diving... It is so easy to become complacent because we have so many safety features in uh, around us that we need to check if they are in place uh, in open circuit, let alone rebreather. We're not even touching on the rebreather part because that'll just make this out podcast into a four-hour podcast. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you're right. <laughs> but um, you know, when you look at twin sets. You, you, you'd be amazed how many people buy a twin set for recreational diving because it makes them feel safer. Because now I have this redundant system. Yeah, in theory, but do you know how to use it? Do you know what to do when it is needed to do something? And they usually don't. And, um, you know, go back to one of the earlier podcasts we've done uh, about why redundancy is, a, is an issue. And I think we're going to maybe revisit that from a risk point of view in a later episode that links into this one. But the twin set per se adds more risk, in my opinion, than it solves. And because it adds more complexity. Exactly. And a good example, in Germany, we have a lake, a very, very popular dive destination. You've been there as well, Jeff, this Kaidesee. Um, it's a quarry. It's basically a huge 50 meter deep outside swimming pool. That's cold the whole year round. It's a beautiful place to dive. It's a fantastic way to train, especially personal skills, because it is, like I said, just a big swimming pool. Um, a lot of people do technical training there. I don't really like it for that, but hey. It's too easy for that. It, it, there's no real dis disruption of the normal environment like a little bit of waves a little bit of current a little bit of water movement it's just not there but anyway that's another story um the rules they have in place from the lake is this privately owned lake they can tell us to do whatever if they say hey meet up and you can only dive here with a pink snorkel it's guess what you dive there with a pink snorkel or you just don't dive and one of their rules is you have to have two first stages so with it and then with another second stage because it's so cold and they've had so many people with free flows running out of gas don't know what to do shooting up to the surface whatever the reason is you need to have two 
first stages. Now, when I went there for the first time many years ago with a whole bunch of students that I've trained, recreational divers, just for a fun weekend away, they were trained on a single tank with one first stage, a long hose and a necklace. And they know what to do when they're when their long hose or whatever free flows, they go into an air share and exit the dive. It's, it's, it's a very simple thing. There's not so much you can do. But now we come there and you can just see the confusion in the eyes of these students. It's like, okay, but what, what do we do now? Now we have this extra first stage we need to have. And how do I then respond to, you know, this, this free flowing regulator or if I'm out of gas or what, what do I do? Do I need to reach back and turn? I don't know if I can reach it. And my response to them was, listen, it's there. We'll, we'll leave your, your first stage in place. And I'll just put on all the students, I've put an extra one of my decompression regulators on it. Now they have an extra first stage and an extra second stage. They actually have three second stages and two first stages. It's there. So if they come by the, by the, by the lakeside and check your equipment, because they'll do that, and it's there. But just ignore it. Just forget it's there leave it there it's fine because they from the lake point of view want to add more safety features to divers that have not been trained in the use of this extra safety thing and it then instills more risks because now they have no idea what to do they get confused if their procedure they've been trained in is still the procedure they should use now they had me their instructor with them imagine if they're certified divers with a single stage on their back, go to that lake, get that confusion, and have no one to ask. It becomes chaos in that situation. And I think that leads to you know, a, a brief discussion about people who have run out of gas and died in scuba diving with doubles with a full tank, one empty, one full. Hmm. We, we've seen it in aviation, in general aviation, for many, many decades now that... You know, there are crashes that happen because of some confusion and you have one tank full and one tank empty. The most famous in the U.S. was John Denver, right, who didn't know on his new experimental airplane how to switch tanks. And so he crashed into the ocean with one tank empty and one tank full. And, you, you know, again, it's like when you add this level of complexity, you add a level of risk. So, you know, look... We're a training agency, right? Our job is training. So our goal is never let somebody in the water in a situation where the complexity of the gear is beyond their level of training. I mean, that's kind of the goal. So if you want to go to Hemor and dive in this lake and you know that it requires two first stages, well, then that's a good, time, good incentive to do some training on an H-valve, a Y-valve, or doubles. It seems simple. If you don't know, then, you know, you've got to look at the risk and say, am I willing to take the risk of having not a clue how to manage this gear? And what happens if the regulator, I'm not breathing free flows? I don't know what to do with this. What do, what do I do with this thing? Do I, you know, and hopefully you revert to your training and you leave it free flowing and you share gas and go home. But, you know, as we start to talk about this, the confidence, the, the comfort, um, uh, of this normalization of risk, this this ability to accept risk because we're comfortable with it. You have to be realistic about it. 
you know, you've got to look at your training and say, am I really taking so much risk that it's not worth it? Like bungee, bungee jumping is a good one, right? I never have and never will bungee jump. Me too. That seems like completely unacceptable risk for me. I'm in somebody's other hands. I'm completely out of control. I'm 100% relying on equipment. Uh, I, there's just, there's nothing about that that appeals to me, not because of the thrill of bungee jumping. I mean, I'm okay about that part. I just don't trust the scenario. No. Right. I'm not comfortable with the risk of the scenario. So I choose not to do it, training or no. Yeah, exactly. How about parachute jump? Well, that's another story with me because, you know, I flew, I flew competition aerobatics for many, many years in small single seat airplanes. And, you know, the requirement for that is you have to wear a parachute. So in my life, that parachute was a thousand dollar cushion. Yeah. I never jumped out of an airplane. I never learned how to use it. I just sat on the thing <laughs> and I was willing to accept the risk that I was going to land that freaking airplane, you know, no, almost no matter what. I mean, you know, my scenario are if the airplane's on fire, I'll take my chances on the parachute I've never used. Um, if the airplane's not controllable, yeah, the wings missing, <laughs> unlikely I'll be able to get out of it anyway, but I would be willing to take my chances on a, on my first jump in that scenario. And, and, uh, I got a lot of grief from friends and family about not doing a practice jump. And I actually went to a, to a jump school one day with a bunch of friends who are also aerobatic pilots. And we were going to go do a jump because all of our spouses and friends were saying, you're crazy. You sit on the thing. You don't know how to use it. And we got there and we started and it was a beautiful day. And then one cloud came in and one raindrop fell. And literally we were just like, oh, we're out of here. <laughs> sounds that was sounds the good only idea. excuse we needed and everybody left and we went to a bar because it just there's no reason to jump out of an airplane you know so so my risk in that scenario was i was willing to take the risk of making my first jump a real jump you know anybody who parachute jumps skydives thinks that that's the dumbest thing in the world i had a lot of friends who flew aerobatic competition air shows never jumped out of an airplane always wore a parachute You know, it's it's this weird thing we do in our minds to say, you know, what's the risk? Mm, you accept it or not. Yeah. If you don't, you the don't. The other do thing it. that's interesting about this, the other story that just comes to mind is uh, we've trained quite a few public safety divers, uh, not so much in specific public safety skills, but in our essentials program and proper diving skills and things like that. And um, one of our, our clients who runs a dive team was getting a lot of flack for the amount of money they were spending on dive training. And his argument back to them was, his successful argument was, we train SWAT, we train urban rescue, we train all these other, you know, fire, everything trains in a simulator. You know, a simulated burn building, a simulated, you know, urban search building, a simulated rope rescue building, except scuba diving. Scuba diving is the only thing that those teams ever did that trained in the real environment, and the real environment is serious. So we don't have the ability in scuba diving, even in a pool, to train in a simulator. The closest we ever get to a simulator is a pool, and it's still dangerous. So, so we have to look at risk very differently from 
you know, somebody who's training a fire department or training a SWAT team with blank bullets or paintball or whatever it is, you know, we are in the environment from the moment you strap on a, a, a BC and a regulator. That's a good point, actually. And, and it makes a, it also comes to mind that topic we talk about when we, in the beginning of this talk, with regards to the perception of risk by the outside environment by spouses or people who have no idea about scuba diving is the perception of risks risk for these technical divers or cave divers is higher than recreational divers whereas in fact most more often than not it's the recreational diver that comes into more problems because of the less amount of training they've had and and that brings me to the point that the biggest risks of them all are the ones you're unaware of, right? So as a technically trained diver, you're training in many, many, many more nuanced failures to, to deal with them if they happen underwater. Thus, being uh, putting you in a position where you're more able to deal with these potential risks and the kind of safety blanket that you can always go to the surface in open water uh, as compared to a cave kind of goes away when you start doing decompression diving because yeah okay the surface is there you can be at you know six meters of water you can see through the surface but if you go through the surface you end up in a wheelchair um, because you need to spend 20 more minutes at that depth and in a cave, it's kind of hard because it's it's a ceiling, right? It's like either you bring a jackhammer or you just wait until your time is to come out of the cave. So the perception of risk is higher, but the training is also higher. So therefore, I'm arguing that those divers, staying within their limitation of the training, obviously, are at less risk uh, because of the training, even though the environment can be perceived as more risky. I think we see that. We saw that a lot in aviation, right? The most dangerous pilots were the ones who had a lot of money. I mean, there's, the joke is doctors and lawyers with airplanes. But, you know, this group of pilots in the three to 400-hour range where they're just getting confident, they're just getting some extra training, but they're, you know, they're, you're at that point in your flight career where you're kind of overconfident, you haven't experienced a lot of problems, and um, those are the people that found themselves in trouble too deep into weather, too deep into circumstances they couldn't get out, too deep into night, wind, thunderstorms, whatever. Once you get through that, you come out the other side of that five, 600 hours of flight time, you tend to respect the scenario more. Yeah. And that allows you to mitigate the risk because you're, you're unwilling to take risks that you know are risky. It's exactly what you were saying. Yeah. The lower time pilots didn't know that flying into an icy cloud was risky because they'd never done it. So, you know, I think that this is the same thing with us with training and diving is that we really have to look at how we can train divers to mitigate risk. The, I think the biggest thing is not to sugarcoat it. For sure. You know, not to, not to assume there is no risk in diving because there is risk in diving. You just have to be trained to accept it. But think about it, right? I mean, if you read accidents that happen in scuba diving, it's almost always the headline experienced diver gets injured or instructor gets into trouble or it's always the experienced divers that get into trouble and 
that that kind of brings us to the next point, last point I want to make in this podcast, and that's the concept of routine versus experience. And I think especially in scuba diving, routine is often misconstrued as experience. And routine is just doing something over and over and over again and never uh, really having any um, chance of learning from that because it's the same thing you do over and over again. And that gives you a big routine, but it doesn't necessarily give you good experience. If you've routinely done a certain activity over and over again without anything failing, you've never had the ex- uh, the opportunity to learn from that failure and get experience by that failure. So my argument is that if you doing the same type of diving every weekend with the same bunch of group of people, even maybe the same body, and you do the same dive over and over and over again, that's when you really have to be disciplined and be aware of not becoming complacent. Because you forget one thing once and you get away with it. You forget it another thing and you get away with it. You forget it a third time and you get away with it. And eventually you're just going to leave it at home because you've forgotten it so many times and you've always gotten away with it. I don't need it anymore. You know, be that a procedure, be that um, the extra top up of, of gas in between dives, whatever. Be disciplined, stay there. And if you feel any need or any um, like tingling sensation in your sixth diving sense that says, hey, there's something here that I know can be risky, but I have no idea what. There's a very easy fix. Go seek out training. It is not dangerous to seek out training. And it's, it's, it's almost in any other sport, it's considered a badge of honor that you go and train for something especially in endurance sports that you and I do, Jeff. But in scuba diving, it's almost like, do you need training? You know, you? No. Or, I don't need training. I've done 3,000 dives. What can you teach me? If, <laughs> some years ago, I had a, uh, a girl in the, in the store uh, when I had the dive center, and she had a very traumatic experience. She basically uh, died on a dive and got revived, luckily. Um, but she was diving with unfamiliar equipment uh, that broke with a buddy that didn't know how to react to that unfamiliar equipment, did something he wasn't supposed to do with turning off valves that actually was the only valve that gave her gas and shot to the surface. And yeah, she basically died and got luckily revived and was she's still alive to tell the story. Um, and she was in the store and she, it really shook her up and wanted to seek out training to, to make sure this doesn't happen again. And, well, we had a good conversation and I said, what about your buddy that was there with you? Oh, yeah, but he's an instructor, so he won't come to the course. Uh, but but why not? But he, he he's already an instructor. Didn't you hear me? Okay, but he was the cause or one of the causes. Uh, we are having this talk right now. But he was adamant. He He's like, okay, what, what am I to learn? I'm an instructor, you know? And too many people think about an instructor as being a good diver per se, per definition. And, you know, in 
we proud ourselves in UTD that, okay, be before you become an instructor, you first need to be a good diver. But in essence, a diving instructor is someone who can be a very good teacher and can be a very knowledgeable person, but might not have good skills. Now, again, in our case, we kind of make sure that they're both, uh, but many, many places around you can definitely see there is some lack of skill even though they're a good educator and hmm, I think there's something to say for that. Uh, so this whole discussion on on risk and normalization and homeostasis in some ways at least in our industry comes down to uh, ego yeah. and, com and complacency. I think those two things and I think that they can work together they can work individually, but if you succumb to ego or you succumb to complacency, I think you run the risk, that was a little joke, I think you run the risk of accepting more risk than, you know, is healthy or safe. So, you know, yeah. if you haven't figured it out by now, the whole point of this podcast has been to say, do the training to the level of your dives and take the risk that you're willing to take, but no more. Anything beyond the risk you're willing to take puts you in a completely compromised scenario and puts your whole team, your buddies and everybody else in a compromised scenario. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a serious topic. And I, I think we didn't, we weren't very funny, but I don't know if we're really, no, but it's serious. We're not really yeah. ever very funny, but <laughs> no, um, we think so. We think we're funny, <laughs> even though nobody else laughs at us. Um, but do the training. Look at look at what you do day in and day out. Look at the risk you take outside of scuba diving. Compare it to the risk inside of scuba diving and decide if your training in scuba diving is sufficient for you to make the risk. If it is, awesome. If it's not, pick up the phone and call us and we'll help you. Yeah. That's the point. It reminds me to to, to like I want to get this out there. It reminds me of when we were in China with that first group of brand new cave divers locally trained in in asia they came and joined us and they were given the task to um, map out the sump basically uh, the open water area of that cave none of them went in even a meter into this cave even though it was clear water wide open you know super super tempting they didn't even go a meter inside the cave you know, and it was just, wow, the, dis the, the discipline to stick to your level of training is just so important. It was just amazingly humbling to see that they were so willing to, you know, not break the rules because they, they had all of the good divers around them. They were easily in a position where they could just say, hmm, I'll take this risk. I'll just go in and have a look. What, what's the worst that can happen, right? Oh, I thought that was amazing. And I think that's a testament to the instruction and, and the training. And, and of course, it's cultural too. So, you know, that's not something you might see in the United States. No, it's definitely cultural. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's some, some months ago, Casper and I were doing a, a fun dive for ourselves in one of these mines up in Sweden. And we were on the dive platform down just about to get in the water. We're doing an equipment match. And some of the other uh, uh, like local leaders of, the, of the, the mines there shouted down to us on the platforms jokingly. It's like, hey, dudes, there's no students around. You can just jump in. You don't have to do all that, you know, acting. 
and and we were like yeah yeah we're just you know laughing with him because he's just like okay wow jesus it's not acting you know he's jumping in with a machine on his back with six thousand moving parts i'm jumping in with a machine with six thousand moving parts uh, we have a scooter we have tanks we have cameras with listen we want to make sure everything is in place and we haven't forgotten anything and then you go have fun and then you go have fun it takes a minute and 30 seconds for four hours of fun. I mean, Jesus. All right. Well, this was this was a really interesting talk. And when I heard that you wanted to do this, I was really excited about just getting involved in this because I think that, you know, it gives us the ability to just kind of talk out of the box a little bit about what we're willing to accept. And, and you know, I know over the course of my life, I've taken some risks, but I've also felt that, you know, I've, I've uh, you know, mitigated that risk as much as I can through training and through brains and through lack of ego and all that so um, i hope everybody else uh, gets a vision of that to to be able to do do the training that you need to do to take the risk exactly be aware that you don't mistake experience with routine and if you seek out training every so often even though you're doing it at the same level of the diver you're a technically trained diver let's say you're a tech one level diver haven't done a tech one dive in two years go and take an adr with one of our tech instructors get back in the game and make sure you're being aware of the dangers and the risks you might have forgotten or might not be aware of that's the final message don't mistake routine for experience and ex training is a a cheap way to buy experience basically good deal so thanks everybody for listening uh you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts apple podcasts po spotify pandora all of that please leave us a rating and review and um, send us a note we'll have the contact information in the show notes let us know um, how we're doing and if you have topics you'd like us to cover be sure to let us know that so we look uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next one ben it's great to have you back on the podcast yeah it was fun to do one again yeah Looking i know forward to the next one and we'll get another one i think we're about ready for an obscure questions podcast don't you yep i got some questions the nitrox one we covered today was one of them but we can cover that again for sure it, you, anytime you want to talk about nitrox call me because I'll, <laughs> I have, i've got 16 rants and they're all the same so. yeah. <laughs> all right all right thanks everybody we appreciate you listening and we'll all be back with you soon Just thanks have a good inside. hell is going outside Down the street of 